Hello and welcome to Spin Unspun, the podcast about leaders and leadership in the world of corporate affairs and corporate communications. I'm Damien Reese from Instinctive Partners, in conversation with the best and the brightest in corporate affairs, asking all the questions and discussing all the topics that really matter to people who shoulder the weighty responsibility for corporate reputation and effective communications. Today, I'm delighted to say I'm joined in the Instinctive Studio by Rebecca Shelley, one of the best-known and most experienced corporate affairs chiefs around, including uh, stints at Tesco and the Prudential and TPICAP, alongside several years in agency as an advisor. But most recently, she's launched a successful career in the boardroom as a non-executive director. Rebecca, great to see you again, and welcome to Instinctive Partners. Great to see you. Um, there's obviously a great deal to talk about, uh, but rather than begin at the beginning, I wanted to jump to the present, first of all, and talk about how you've developed uh, a new string to your bow as a non-executive uh, director, because I imagine uh, there's probably quite a lot of senior people in corporate affairs who'd like to think that going plural uh, as it were, is something that they would aspire to, uh, but I suspect it's not it's not that easy, even with all the experience that someone like you has had. Just tell me why first of all, why did you want to uh, take your experience into the into the boardroom and, and how did you go about making the change happen? Um, I love to start at the end. That's brilliant. Um, so I had always wanted to be a non-executive director after my executive career. It felt to me like a sensible step towards pre-retirement, if I can call it that, which makes, pre -retirement. It, makes it all sound very elderly. Um, and it's something that no matter which discipline you come from, it can take a very long time to effect. Um, I had been going to various networking sessions, uh, had discussions with all sorts of people about how one makes the transition. But actually, the first non-exec role I took, which is for Sabre Insurance, um, I was approached by the chairman um, who was leading the IPO. It was a BC Partners exit, and they were looking to build a board quite rapidly. I had worked with him 20 years before uh, at Norwich Union, and he knew that I'd done investor relations initially, uh, was very well informed about corporate governance, had spent a lot of time in the boardroom. And as he put together his board, he felt that my skills would be appropriate for the IPO. So, so you got that job because of someone you knew you'd worked work with them before. I mean, in your experience now, is, is that the the best way to become a non-executive director because you know everyone talks about the importance of networking and you, you need a network to do this and the headhunters obviously play a, a critical role but is that your experience in reality? It's one way and to be clear, he put me in the process rather than offered me the role uh, so you still have to get the role on merit but getting into a process is very challenging and I think for headhunters um, uh, and now in my position on the three boards I'm on, I'm on the nominations committee for each. As we talk about hiring new non-executive directors, 
there are very broad conversations about, are we happy to have a first-time NED? Again, it doesn't matter if you're a comms person or whether you're an operational person, whether you'd be an HR person or a marketing person. Is the board prepared to, if I say take a risk, I don't necessarily mean it's risky, but you need to invest quite a lot in helping that non-executive director get up to speed. So what is the... What is the change like as it were when the, when you first walk into the boardroom i mean how what, was it very different to what you expected no it was exactly as i expected <laughs> which is good you've done um, your homework and one of the things i would say about comms people and why i think they do and will make good non-executive directors is they've spent a lot of their career in the boardroom uh you know working very closely with chief execs finance directors chairman and the board whether it's on just plain old financial calendar stuff whether it's on M&A or anything else that the board is discussing about communications or strategic changes and reputation where absolutely absolutely so you know what the boardroom is like i would say as an executive you also know what good looks like you know what not good looks like you know what value add looks like as opposed to do you think we should have a comma before and on line <laughs> three of our outlook statement um which is not value adding and so i think in a way that almost makes you better prepared to be a non-executive director because you have seen boards operate often in stressed circumstances yes and i mean do you think corporate affairs uh, people get overlooked as potential neds or maybe they don't Yes. try because um, they think they'll get overlooked. Uh, I think a number do try, but it's try is, is a hard word to define. So I think you need to be clear with anyone you talk to that in due course you would like to become a non-executive director, but also be very clear about what skills you can add. Mm. And one of the things that surprised me was in the boardroom – very few non-execs have comms slash reputational slash investor relations experience. So they're good at the strategy, they're good at the operations, audit committee, risk committee, wonderful. But are we actually thinking about, uh, as we do this strategic change, how are we bringing our people with us? You know, internal comms, do, it's not something boards often think about, and it doesn't need to be a priority, but it needs to be something in the mix. And the three board roles I have are all FTSE 250s, which tend not to have a comms director. Yes. Gross generalization. Yes. People are going to but shout and say I'm they're wrong. Pretty... But they're very lean. Yeah. And actually joining the board of a FTSE 250, again, is quite a nice transition from executive to non-executive because you can help in inverted commas, um, but you can also play that um, totally independent non-executive director role. And you can add a lot of value, yeah. <coughs> given your experience. Yeah, practical um, value. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, your background originally was investor relations, yeah. and you've obviously done a huge amount of financial communications. Presumably, having a grip of the numbers is is absolutely paramount for a non-exec, yes. who, who, whatever your background. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, for... I suspect it's FTSE 350s and possibly smaller that tend to be the first non-exec roles for most people. And so you're going to sit on all of the committees, remuneration, nomco, and of course, audit and risk. Now, 
you need to read the papers, obviously a prerequisite of any board meeting, but you need to understand what they mean and be able to add value in the discussion. So understanding numbers is key, but um, it's a small investment to make. And I would hope that any comms person operating at a high level does actually uh, actually understand the numbers and how the investment case works, because ultimately um, that's what people are going to focus on. So you've now got three non-execs, Sabre Insurance, Lion Trust Asset Management and Hilton. Yeah, Hilton Food Group. Yeah, Hilton Food Group. Um, Is three the optimal number, do you think? Uh, I believe one can have up to five. I like having three. I will do one more. Uh, I think four will be enough. And um, I, I suppose that's for several reasons. Firstly, it takes quite a long time to get up to speed as you join a business. So I joined Lion Trust in November of last year. And I would say I am now up to speed in terms of understanding the flow of the board papers, what the key issues are, uh, what the key drivers are, building relationships with the other non-execs, but also the management team. Um, and now my three, I am up to speed on and have good relationships. I am talking to others about doing a fourth. But then this is my pre-retirement work-life balance, let's remember. <laughs> and it's rather nice to work much less, mm. but be doing work which is incredibly rewarding. And and so the committers that you, you sit on on those three cover the full range, or is it? are you more focused on, say, audit, uh, given your financial background? Yeah. Um, I sit on nominations committee for all of them. I'm the remuneration committee chair at Sabre. And again, I think comms people are incredibly well equipped to do remuneration because, of course, you've been having discussions Mm. with journalists, as indeed you and I may well have done back in the day on remuneration. You know, it tends to be something you understand well. um, And it's a very interesting debate every single season, you know, what works, what doesn't and why. Um, I sit on the Audit and Risk Committee for all three, actually at Sabre, audit and risk are separate now. I'm on the risk committee, not the audit. Um, I chair the sustainability committee at Hilton Food Group, which is fascinating. That was within my remit at Tesco. Um, And uh, I'm the senior independent director at both Sabre Insurance and Lion Trust Asset Management. So three FTSE 250s, presumably a FTSE 100 is next. I don't think so. A little way to go on that. Who knows? And again, you know, back to the conversation about FTSE 250 versus FTSE 100. I like that transitional feel about being at a FTSE 250 between bridging your executive career and board career. The company really does need you to add value in certain areas where it doesn't have the expertise in-house. At the moment, I'm enjoying that. And I think, uh, let's see, I probably... Did my uh, joined the Sabre board five years ago, but I still feel I'm relatively early on in my non-executive career. So perhaps FTSE 100 in due course. How soon? I don't know. Fair enough. Um, you mentioned sustainability. Yeah. Um, let's just talk about that for a moment. Um, um, you did a lot of it uh, in relation to Tesco. Um, what, what does good look like, do you think, in sustainability in terms of how a company um, communicates what it's doing, but also how it actually approaches sustainability in terms of it, how embedded it is in terms of its business model. I mean, 
there's a lot of criticism flying around about how companies are, are approaching sustainability. There's a lot of cynicism, skepticism. Um, I mean, if you were in a boardroom now, what would what would your advice be about sustainability and getting it right? It needs to be absolutely relevant to the business. So for different businesses, there are different things which are important. At Hilton Food Group, it's a food business. So it is absolutely fundamental to how the company does business, all through supply chain and sourcing um, and uh, everything that our customers, who are all the big uh, food retailers, um, what they find important too. So that is very, very different to what sustainability would look like at Sabre Insurance, for example. And again, Lion Trust Asset Management, it is well known for its sustainable funds. So each business has a different approach. And that, to me, is the most important. It's got to be relevant um, and purposeful for that business itself, rather than just jumping on a bandwagon and throwing some green things. Yes. So the risk is overreach, I guess, and 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 um, engaging in sustainability initiatives, etc., which are, to use your phrase, irrelevant. Yeah, and also making it relevant to employees. Right. Again, at Hilton, it's incredibly important to all of the employees throughout the whole business because they understand what they can do, or it means they can understand in their day-to-day job what's important. Clearly, there's statutory reporting that every business has to do, um, which isn't, I was going to say, which isn't enormously onerous, but at least it is clear and well-defined, albeit there's lots of debate about measures. Um, Most companies are now embedding sustainability measures in their pay plans. So there's a lot of discussion in boardrooms at the moment about how the remuneration committees can take the relevant elements of sustainability to put it in the compensation package for executives so that Mm. what they're delivering is absolutely aligned to what the business needs and shareholders are expecting companies to do that. And I think that's how you make it real. Okay. Let's uh, just turn back to the topic of corporate affairs. Um, You obviously bring a lot of experience to the boardroom, as as we've discussed. um, so let's let's just talk a little bit about the career uh, that accounts for uh, for that experience and what you've learned over the years. Uh, we mentioned investor relations uh, as um, a topic that you obviously have uh, a background in uh, originally, but clearly you've developed from investor relations into a uh, into a wider corporate affairs uh, and corporate communications capability. Just touching on financial communications as part of that, uh, I think it's often seen as something of a uh, sometimes relatively obscure specialism, as it were, in the in the wider world of uh, corporate communications. But presumably, it's really core to everything that a, a corporate communications leader uh, needs uh, to be able to uh, understand and get their head around. Because I guess it goes to the heart of, well, the heart of the matter as far as a business is concerned. Unless you understand the numbers, you'll never really understand the business. Is that fair? Yes, it is fair. And I think also for any company to advance, it needs the support of its shareholders. And to get the support of your shareholders, you need to be able to have a strong investment case 
as to why people would want to buy and hold the shares um, and support the management team in its ambitions. And that's through good times and bad. And I mean, how did you then sort of parlay your uh, experience in financial communications into this wider role? I mean, presumably, you obviously wanted to you know, get on in, in, in your career. I mean, was it relatively straightforward to then acquire the other skill sets that you need? Uh, I think over time, you saw, um, or, or to start with, you saw investor relations directors working for finance directors, comms directors working for the chief exec, investor relations being more numbers investment case focused, comms director being more strategic and corporate PR focused. And I think through the mid to late 2000s, the two of those rightly came together because the overarching strategic story and the investment case should be as one. Mm. And I was in the right place at the right time when that happened. And the because, of course, I have an IR background, I think this is the way it should be. Um, I took on the broader comms remit uh, and aligned it as one rather than having two leaders. And you saw this across many businesses, I'm sure you can think of more than me, when those disciplines came together. Interestingly, IR is starting to drift off again. And so again, I, I might be out of date, but it is starting to go back to the finance team more. But I think that more broadly articulated and supported corporate strategic story and investment case are woven together as one. And I think that's absolutely crucial. Yes, I'd, I'd agree with that 100%. And that's certainly been my experience, both as a, as a journalist and then as an advisor. It makes a whole lot more sense to have them mm. integrated. And you you just get a much more coherent story yeah. uh, that the whole company can really uh, articulate. Um, we know in life things don't always go according to plan. Uh, and when you were at the Prudential, there was a very uh, challenging episode back in 2004, uh, when the company announced a £1 billion rights issue that, amongst some audiences, uh, didn't go down terribly well, uh, I seem to remember. Do you think that that was because uh, the rights issue was a was a a big surprise as far as most people were concerned. Uh, it, it was a surprise. In fact, I remember the day well. It was a very long, painful day um, <laughs> with many unpleasant phone calls. Uh, it was a surprise, and I think it is a lesson to companies about how they communicate. Certainly for me, um, it was very clear that as a company tells its story, you need to be thinking about where you've come from, where you are now, and where is a business you want to go, and framing that discussion in a wider context so people understand. And that is something that in subsequent businesses and as an advisor, uh, and now in the boardroom, I think about a lot. Uh, I think it's incredibly important. So signaling broadly yes. where this company might want yeah. to go and how it might get there. Yes, yeah, signalling that and thinking also, and I'm sure for you as an advisor at the moment in the markets we're in now, are helping companies think about how they tell their stories, 
companies tend to have defense plans in place. Um, you know, what would be the key attack themes? What are your high-level defense? All of that is really good to develop the rigor of thinking about how does the outside world perceive you? How does that match up to your existing business plan? And making sure that rather than keeping your powder dry, you are always telling the story in a way which is clearly understood within the context of the world in which you operate and where is a business you need to get to. That's right, exactly it. I think that's good advice in general, I think, for financial communications because one thing I'm often surprised by, um, and I've advised a lot of companies over the over the years and, of course, was on the other side of the fence as a, as a journalist and editor, what uh, uh, often surprised me was the extent to which companies don't have in mind this narrative, mm. this journey, as it were, to use a horrible phrase. Uh, they go from one results to the to the other uh, and are quite reactive and just want to get through the results. And they don't take time with their audiences like shareholders and the media to build this, this, this narrative about strategy, about how the business model is put together and how that works and how it all fits together in a into a sort of five-year view, yeah. and they miss out the signposts as well. And, yeah. and and so there isn't really a story for people to follow. And that's when you do get uh, real surprises because people don't really have a clear view of where it is you're going and mm. can't fit the news into that broader context. Yeah. After the Prudential, the next in-house role you took was Tesco, uh, where there were obviously multiple challenges to overcome. Uh, we had Phil Clark there, who obviously had taken over from Terry Leahy, and then eventually Dave Lewis uh, came in to replace Phil as chief executive. Within that period, you had the £250 million accounting irregularities issue, I think which was a, an example of a, a financial story that certainly shocked quite a lot of audiences. But we'll, we'll come on to the extent to which you think that that sort of uh, raised awareness amongst uh, customers because I think that's quite an interesting issue for a lot of uh, companies. And of course, there was the, the constant ongoing challenge of uh, maintaining market share versus discounters, Oldie and Lidl. Um, so it must have been, in the four years you were there, it must have been quite a roller coaster. It was indeed. It was very busy. Um, and as I look back, probably one of the most exciting and professionally rewarding times of my career. Um, goodness me, you learn a lot. And Would when, you say you were in constant crisis mode or was there time um, to step back and, and do that strategic there bit? Was, there was time to step back and I think it's important for a comms director and a business more broadly to be able to step back and to be able to see the urgent and the important and, you know, important is often longer term and more strategic, but urgent is a fire that has to be put out there and then. And there were a number of fires, as you have said in your introduction. Um, but it is incredible how much you learn at times like that. And as I look back now and think, um, think how full on it was uh, and how stressful it was from time to time, um, you do sometimes wonder how you did it. But at the time, when you're in the eye of the storm, 
it's a very dynamic, challenging, interesting situation, which really brings teams together. Um, so it was a fascinating time. Mm. Um, and uh, I learned a lot. And it's, it's really interesting what you say there about how intense it was, because this brings me on to what do you need to be a really successful head of corporate affairs? There you were in Tesco. Um, I mean, the, the, the character traits that someone like you in that position need are not traits I think that everyone has. I mean, what, 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 what is the equipment you need for, to, to do that job um, for, for as long as you did? I mean, mm. I guess thick skin is, not, is, is, is one, but it's, it's a lot well, more than that. Yes, and it, it can be difficult. I think if your skin's too thick, you're not going to do your job properly because you need to be able to listen to the outside world and on many occasions the inside world as well. I think any comms leader in any stressful situation uh, has to be resilient. Uh, that, that to me is the key. Uh, I think you also need to be able to lead and however that comes across. How big was your team at Tesco? Um, it was somewhere between 80 and 100 probably. But again, you know, a dozen people in um, the PR team who were looking after local regions. So a cat gets stuck up a tree in Plymouth and, you know, a dot-com driver knocks over an empty child's pram somewhere. You know, the local papers need attention and they need to have the conversations. And of course, that's important. Um, so uh, the team was large, but it was a very large customer-facing business um, and sort of back to important versus urgent. Um, I think for me, one of the most important things was having a really, really talented team. So very, very strong people running each of the areas within communications and having a team where you've got really good relationships no idea is a bad idea. And I was learning every day. I mean, there were people in my team who had fantastic ideas and there were things I hadn't come across before. And it's creating an environment where you can have those conversations. Everyone mucks in and helps and you're all pulling towards the right direction. So you need leadership. Uh, you need the ability to um, take, the, take the pulse of an organization internally and externally. Um, Presumably, diplomacy comes into it. I mean, you was, you sat on the executive committee, mm -hmm. obviously at Tesco, yeah. as you did at the yeah. uh, at the Prudential. I mean, those are environments that are quite tricky, are they not to to to, to navigate? They are. I mean, and we're talking, you know, internal politics at the end of the day, aren't we? Yeah, we are. <laughs> and diplomacy diplomacy is a good word for it. Um, I think it, we started talking about what a good non-executive director needs. And I think empathy is a big part of that and the ability to build relationships. I think one of the reasons I found the transition quite easy is in my executive role, um, I needed to do a lot of what you do as a non-exec in the boardroom, which is be able to have challenging and difficult conversations, which hopefully are also supportive, but you do it in a way which is seen as constructive um, so rather than just challenging in an undiplomatic way, yes, be diplomatic, but not too diplomatic, because sometimes that challenge has to happen. Yes, indeed. Um, so let me just take you back then to the to the accounting irregularities yeah. story. Um, 
I think people are interested in that because it, you know it was a it was a genuine crisis that involved quite a lot of different elements. You know, the share price obviously took quite a major hit. You had external regulatory uh, bodies coming in to investigate, like the SFO, etc. Uh, the media were quite critical of governance on the board. Um, why didn't the board know about this before? Um, and I guess it was a, 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 a at the nub of it, it was all about the relationship that Tesco has with its suppliers and how it deals with suppliers. So the confidence and trust of suppliers and I guess staff was um, an issue. How did you approach the situation? Because um, you know it was a big one to get your your arms around, uh, and maybe I'm being melodramatic here, but it, it, externally, I think people thought, well, is this an existential threat to Tesco? Mm. I mean, can they actually survive this? Mm. I mean, just talk us through how you sat down and thought, right? How, how do I how do I approach this crisis? How do I deal with this? What are the pieces I need to put together? The steps. Mm. Well, your existential question is an interesting one and a good one. And for me, it was very eye-opening to see that despite this storm going on really in a very visible manner, customers were still coming into the store. And at the end of the day, customer is absolutely centre to Tesco's success. Customers for the most part, didn't know this story. They don't know what the SFO is. They don't know what an accounting error, what's 250 million pounds. You know, I want to come in for my weekly shop in an environment I enjoy to buy food for my family at my local Tesco. And one of the things I learned at Tesco was how important marketing is and customer statistics because customers were still coming into stores. And Sometimes at a corporate level or a strategic level, you can think, oh, my God, Tesco is having a horrific time. How can it cope? And yet you speak to the person on the street or someone going into or out of a Tesco store, and they all say, I love my local store. The manager's great. I love this whatever food it is that you want. Um, and ultimately, the business will succeed or fail based on doing a good job for customers. So for me as a comms person, that was very grounding yeah. to see that despite many questions being asked and a situation which was undoubtedly very serious, the business continued to function well and customers continued to support it. Um, again, in the media, it was everything that people wanted to talk about. It's always, where have we got to with the SFO? What SFO, SFO, 250 million pounds. And I talked before about the team and about some of the things that they focused on, which were much more local, much more customer focused. And what we did was ring fence a little area, which was about the SFO investigation. And again, back to urgent versus important, the important business of day-to-day -day stuff was what most of the team got on with. And there was a small unit working closely with legal, etc., which focused on the extraordinary high-profile city story. 
which actually really didn't impact footfall in the stores. So, that's so re- yes, I mean that's that's really helpful and interesting to to understand. Uh, <clears throat> You know, you, you really wanted to make sure that um, you and the company focused on the fundamentals in all of this storm, because as you say, it's really easy for people to have their heads turn and yeah. panic yeah. almost sets in sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and a good way of grounding people is to say, well, look, let's just focus, first of all, on the fundamentals. Is the company still working? What can we do to make sure that that carries on? And then you separate off yeah. The the urgent, as you say, yeah. Yeah. into a uh, into a separate into a separate unit, and then it can be dealt with more mm. realistically, I guess. Um, and fundamentally, therefore, you, you you don't feel that that whole episode really had a, an impact on the reputation of the business with the customer at the end of the day. Um, Which again in, is something that I think a lot of people in the boardroom forget. Yes, they they think, oh my god, this is it. Yeah. When actually it's not. It's bad, but. Yeah. Your most important audience, your customers, are not really that bothered. Yeah, not really that. But of course, there's a small number who would be. Um, but for the majority, no, it was not on their radar. Okay. Um, I just want to turn now to, um, uh, you know, again, your career more generally and what you've learned in your time. Um, because you worked uh, in-house, obviously very successfully for many years with, for some really big blue chips, but you also worked in, in agency. What, um, what, what are the sort of key differences that you observed between those two environments? And did you really enjoy one more than the other? I enjoyed both greatly. And having been in-house, I think, made agency very different for me. Uh, again, I could empathize with what a client uh, needed to go through in terms of process to make something happen. Uh, I, Before I went in the house for the first time, I was also in agency as one of my first roles um, when I was starting out. And I think you're so keen and you have so many ideas and you talk to your client about it and you don't understand why they don't implement it immediately <laughs> because it's brilliant. Um, and once you've been in-house, or as you become a little more experienced and seasoned, you understand that companies operate in certain ways. There are processes to go through. You need to bring people with you. Um, and I would say for most of the things I worked on within an agency, you're working on something interesting and exciting, a project, something. There's something going on, whereas in-house, there's often not something, ex- hopefully, <laughs> there isn't anything exciting going on and it's yes. business as usual. Yeah. And that is more about what you and the team are there to do, how you are best resourced to do it and work with the business to do it. There's also a lot of what in the old days, I mean old, old days, agencies didn't do very well, which in open inverted commas is management, Um there is a lot of management within businesses um, because you are thinking of the strategy, delivery of it, your team, succession, who you can best work with to achieve that. So they're very, very different. Um, So I like both the same. They are very different. They really are very different. So who have been your mentors and who do you admire most? in the world of corporate affairs? I have never had a mentor 
in the technical sense. Uh, I work closely with or have good relationships with and would network with, I suppose is the word, lots of people. Um, there are various different fora for comms directors um, where you would get together as a group of 10 or a dozen or 20 people and have a very convivial drinks and dinner and a roundtable discussion about why Damien Reese is such an awful journalist to deal with or <laughs> whatever it may be. But, you know, talk about internal comms. Why can't you hire good internal comms people? Obviously, I'm going back a long way here, and that's just an example. Um, and you learn a lot from each other. And in fact, your peers can be great supporters and you can help each other because you've often experienced similar things or you're about to face a challenge that others around the table might have done. So I have always had strong relationships with my peers. And I think for me, that's probably been the most helpful. But we are open talking about a network. Um, again, doing investor relations. I've worked closely with a number of the company's advisors and brokers. Again, they have such great experience across so many different things um, that you can discuss all sorts of different things with them. So for me, it's been open about conversations you have with people, conceptually, obviously, um, and just always wanting to keep learning. Yeah, so allowing the industry and allowing your network to mentor you, yeah, really. Yeah, at the end absolutely. Of the day. And, and in turn, mentoring others. And that's one of the things I also do now is people will call me and ask to meet up or have a conversation. And I really enjoy those sorts of discussions where people are facing challenges that perhaps I've had in my life. So imagine one of those people who've uh, come to you for a coffee is a sort of mid to late 20s bright young thing who is absolutely determined to follow in your footsteps. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, I mean, what, what, what are the basic, uh, uh, what's the basic advice you would, give, you would give to that person, particularly if they were a woman, for instance, um, starting out in this, in this world? Because it is a pretty tough uh, job and it's pretty intense, as we know. Um, what would you say to them? I would say work hard. Which That's, is a piece of advice that would, would be good for anybody, let's face well, it. Well, I think it a, does apply uh, yeah. to anybody, and I don't think it matters who asks. Um, you know, at any stage of your career, and, you know, um, as you say, anybody, doesn't matter if it's a woman, doesn't matter at all, just work really hard. Always be well prepared, work very hard, offer to help others, I think is a great way of learning rather than just doing the work you're given um, and then moving on um, and get out and meet people. You know, uh, back in the day when I was a youngster um, and obviously all pre-COVID, you would be out meeting people, having discussions, building relationships, getting to know journalists, um, getting to know analysts, investors, your peers um, and people in the industry. Because people will hear you say that um, about networking. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if it's a, a sort of dying skill these days because of home working and teams and Zoom. Um, it's it's easier said than done, I think, isn't it, networking? I mean, I had to do a lot of it, particularly as a journalist. Mm. Um, and 
again, back in the day, we sound like two old fogies here. <laughs> we are we? old fogies. Oh, yes. um, back in the day, it was how you got stories. And I worked on Sunday newspapers and mm. they came out once a week and you lived and died by your scoops. And you had to go out and, and find them and talk to people, whether it was on the phone or, or, or face, meeting them face to face. I think, am I right in thinking that uh, young people are actually quite intimidated by the idea of having to network in the sense that you that you mean? I don't know. I don't know. That's a really bad answer. I hope not, because ultimately what we do in the world of communications and the reputation of a company, it is a relationship business. Yeah. And it is about empathy and it is about listening. And you need to know what the world thinks. And how are you going to learn from others? Fine, you can learn from colleagues. Um, if you're but, in the office. Well, if you're in the office, but maybe you can do that on Zoom teams, calls, and every other way that people are working remotely now. Maybe it'll take longer because of of the medium that they are working with now. But I I do believe that it is a relationship business, and that there is um, there is something about building those relationships that gives you more insight into how people are thinking internally in the business, which is really important, um, but also the outside world. And then for you to bridge those two, for me, it worked by meeting people and building those relationships, but maybe people do it differently now. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. Uh, you've been listening to Spin Unspun, the podcast from Instinctive Partners about corporate affairs and corporate communications with me, Damien Reese, and my guest today, Rebecca Shelley. Rebecca, once again, thank you. Thank you. Uh, join us again for our next episode of Spin Unspun, details at instinctive.com. Find us on social media, on the usual channels. And if you'd like to get in touch about Spin Unspun, just drop me a line, damien.reese at instinctive.com. Spin Unspun.